0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of
1: Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds today. I'm very excited to speak with you and learn from you. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan?
0: Yeah, so I'm Robert Manduka, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology here at the University of Michigan.
1: And in what areas does your research focus?
0: My research focuses, a lot of it at least, focuses on questions related to economic inequality. So, you know, we know that if you look at the distribution of income or the distribution of wealth in the United States and in many other countries, there's been a concentration of, of resources at the top of the distribution, so among the very rich. And in my research, I ask, you know, what is what are some of the consequences of that concentration for different aspects of life in the United States? So how does the the, the fact that, a uh, lo- you know, larger and larger share of, of income, for instance, is ending up in a smaller set of hands at the very top. Um, what does that mean for, for other aspects of American life? And so, you know, what does that mean in terms of things like economic mobility? How is that affecting different regions of the country? Um, how does that affect uh, inequality between different racial or ethnic groups? These sorts of consequences of, of the rise in income inequality overall.
1: That's really interesting. Uh, can you share how you conduct that research? What processes or projects do you use to explore income inequality?
0: Yeah, so there's several different types of methods that I use, but in a lot of my academic research, I use uh, quantitative methods, usually with census data or with other large data sets that track incomes of of individuals and families over time. Um, And in my work, I do a lot of simulation methods. So basically asking what would the world look like if some event hadn't happened, or for instance, if inequality hadn't gone up as much as it did, you know, how would the world be different? How would, you know, inequality between different places look in that hypothetical scenario? Um, so there's a lot of, uh, of descriptive work of just sort of tracking what the trends have been in reality over time, and then um, a lot of simulations. So saying, you know, imagine if something hadn't happened, or imagine if inequality hadn't gotten worse, what would we, the world look like in that case?
1: It makes me think of like historical fiction, novels. <laughs> So I want to uh, dive into a specific project that you've been working on. Can you tell me about the Reviving Growth Keynesianism project?
0: Yeah, so this is a project that I've been doing for um, about a year now, um, and it's kind of at the intersection of academic research and policy Um, And also just sort of like popular understandings about the economy. And so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, one of my main interests in my academic work is the consequences of rising inequality and how does the, you know, the changing shape of the income distribution affect different aspects of, of life in the United States. And one of the biggest, you know, areas in which you might wonder about the consequences of inequality is, you know, how does this relate to economic performance overall, right? So like, is inequality, you know, to put it bluntly, is it good or is it bad for the economy? Is it something that's necessary and that we have to sort of endure? Or is it something that's maybe even being a drag on economic growth or economic stability, a problem for economic stability? Until recently, and for the last like five, or at least until the last five or 10 years or so, my sense would be, or I would say that the the common understanding, certainly within the discipline of economics, and also I think in broader um, society, is that there was sort of a trade-off between, they, the, people would say a trade-off between um, equity and efficiency, or a trade-off between growth and equality. And there was this idea that some amount of income inequality was was necessary, or was even good for the economy or good for economic growth, and that there was this trade-off where, you know, sure, everyone would like to have a more equal society, or many people would like to have a more equal society, but there was a a worry that if you implemented policies to try to make our society more equal, that that would have the effect of worsening the overall economic growth rate or um, decreasing economic performance, making recessions more likely, that sort of thing. However, and so that was, I think, a, a pretty widely held view, but it's not the only one that you can imagine holding, right? Like you, there's a lot of reasons you can think of that actually might be bad to have too much inequality in the economy. So for instance, if you think about people talk about supply and demand um, in economics, and if you think about the overall macroeconomic condition of the country, you know, that's determined by our total supply in the, in the economy. So how many factories do we have? How much is the economy producing? But it's also determined by demand, which is, you know, you know, how much um, how much demand for products or how much are consumers purchasing within the economy. Um, and demand is very much influenced by the level of inequality, right? Because in order to buy something, I have to have enough money to purchase it. Um, and you can imagine that as resources get concentrated at the top, that means that people who are lower in the income distribution are going to be able to, to consume less. They won't have as much, enough money to purchase things. And that might have the effect of reducing overall demand for products and goods and services in the in the economy, which could, could reduce economic growth or even create recessions. Um, and so this is you know, sort of a conceptual reason why you might think that inequality could be problematic from a macroeconomic standpoint. And it turns out, and this is where I got into uh, what's called Keynesian economics, is that it turns out that these ideas have been very widely held at different points in the past. And in particular, um, if you go back to the 1940s and 1950s, which were some of them, you know, they they call it the post-war boom, some of the strongest economic growth that the United States has ever seen. At that time, this conception of the the sort of demand side of the economy, the importance of making sure that everyone, that consumers have enough to buy things, have enough money to to buy things, um, was really widespread and was very widely held. You know, among policymakers, among economists, among uh, among business business leaders, even um, as well as among you know labor organizers, and it was just sort of you know back in those days uh, there was this common understanding that in order for the economy to function you had to have a basic level of rough economic equality you had to have fa- have a fairly egalitarian income distribution because if you didn't then you know if too much money was concentrated at the very top then there wouldn't be enough to buy to buy products to to keep the economy running. Um, and so that's kind of where the reviving growth Keynesianism project came about. Was basically I was really interested in, and with some collaborators, um, to try to go back and, and sort of understand and and re uh, revive, so to speak, um, these ideas from back in the you know in, in the mid century of sort of how how was it that people back then in this era that we now look on as like a a period where capitalism was actually working you know relatively well. Incomes were going for everyone. The economy was really um, performing quite well. How was it that the the people who were in charge of the economy back then were thinking about it, and and specifically wanting to highlight that you know this was some a time when they were very concerned about maintaining a you know an equitable income distribution because of the economic consequences of it. Um, so that's sort of how we how we got involved. And and I guess I would just say this is you know we call it Keynesian economics because uh, in reference to John Maynard Keynes, who's one of the most prominent economists of the of the twentieth century or really all time. And uh, you know, he would he he a lot of the ideas that we think of um around, around aggregate demand and economic performance are are attributed to him or were sort of first mathematized by by Keynes. So they they have um one of the things we've discovered in the project is that they, they really do have antecedents um, b- before his his work. But, uh, you know, what he was doing is he was looking around in the in the 1930s, in the middle of the Great Depression. And he was saying, OK, why is it that we have so much unemployment? Why is the economy stalled out? And he was asking this question of, you know, is this about supplies? The problem that we have too few workers, too, too few factories, not enough um, investment. Or is it demand? The problem is that, you know, the people who are in our country don't have enough money to, to purchase the products that we would be capable of making. And, you know, looking around during the Great Depression, when there was sky high unemployment, um, he was able to say, you know, this is definitely a demand side problem. And so, you know, the the government should focus on increasing aggregate demand of, you know, making sure that there's enough money to purchase things in the economy. Yeah, so that's sort of the, the history of the Keynesian ideas. And then what we're, what we're specifically aiming for with, with RGK.
1: That's really interesting. Thank you for really diving into um, what brought it about, because I think it it just feeds really well into, um, you know, what, what got you here, what led you to this. Can you share anything about what you are specifically exploring through the project right now?
0: Yeah, so um, a lot of our efforts have been focused on basically like Identifying and even recirculating original economic writing from specifically this period of the you know 1930s to 1950s, but also um, we're sort of broadening our scope as we as we move along um, into you know previous eras. So a lot of our work has basically been to go back into you know into the archives or into libraries or or sometimes the internet um, and identify you know original texts from that era that describe some of these principles and just sort of show how people, uh, especially economists and policymakers and And, you know, sometimes other, uh, you know, business leaders, labor leaders, that sort of thing, how people were thinking about the economy back then. And in particular, the way that they highlighted this connection between the need for an equitable income distribution um, in order to have uh, macroeconomic stability in order to avoid recessions. And so, you know, we've done a lot of sort of uh, yeah, identifying original works, and we'll we will um, then oftentimes work with, you know, either if works are in the public domain, we'll just post copies of them on our website and write sort of introductions that explain the context of who was this author, who were they conversing with, why were these ideas important, how were they influential in their era. Um, and then we'll also in some cases be working with like descendants of the authors to to get, uh, permission to repost these books or writings um, and get them back out into the the wider world. So a lot of our efforts right now are sort of focused on, you know, intellectual treasure hunt of trying to find these uh these pieces of writing from back back in the day that I think and I think we think on our team are, are oftentimes extremely relevant, you know, without even any translation you can read this and be like, "Oh, this explains our current situation of why is it that the economy's so stagnant while also we're having, you know, these problems of of rising inequality. These historical writings oftentimes are really helpful in understanding the, the world as it is today.
1: And you mentioned, um, you know, some of the, the different efforts. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What are, what are some of the different efforts within the project?
0: Yeah, so so one of the things that we're doing is this sort of archival work of identifying old texts. So we um, we recently republished a, a series of books by two two authors, uh, Waddle Catchings and William Foster. These are sort of an interesting uh, pair. So they were uh, very much, I think, part of the establishment. So Catchings was actually the, the head of Goldman Sachs in the 1920s. So during the roaring 20s, he's, he's basically the CEO of Go- Goldman Sachs. And then with his, I think his his college friend, William Foster, who actually um, was one of the first president of Reed College um, in Portland, Oregon, uh, and an economist. And they wrote this series of books that was basically laying out what's called the underconsumption thesis. So this is sort of a precursor to the Keynesian economics that I was describing earlier of basically they are saying there's a problem in the economy, which is that wages for many people are so low because of the high inequality that we had in the 1920s. Uh, you know, this is the end of the Gilded Age. Um, the the pro- Because our level of inequality is so high, our economy is going to be fundamentally unstable and it's not going to be able to continue growing or to continue providing macroeconomic stability because wages are so low for so many people that they aren't able to consume as much as they're producing. And so here you have, you know, in the 1920s, the head of Goldman Sachs saying you know, the biggest economic problem today is that inequality is too high and that, you know, everyday workers aren't making enough. Um, they were actually able to, because in part of their their positions, they were able to, to be quite influential. So they had a think tank called the Pollock Foundation and they, you know, they had uh, the Chamber of Commerce was on board. They had all sorts of, you know, really sort of uh, surprisingly powerful allies in the in the U.S. establishment that were pushing this idea from the business, basically making the business case for why too much inequality is really problematic. Um, and so I think you know we're sort of uncovering uh, writings like these, or you know, there's other other historical characters that I think are also really fascinating. And that's sort of one major effort. And then a second thing that we do is we we have a podcast uh, with myself and two co-hosts who are both um, PhD students in history at the University of Chicago, Nick Johnson and, and Chris Hong. Um, and there we're, we're doing, we do interviews with people, both with scholars of this era. So people who work on intellectual history of economic thought, people who study the economic history, especially of the United States, but also of other countries. And then we also talk to people who are working today. So people from the policy world or journalists who are, you know, sort of trying to understand what's going on in the economy uh, at the present moment and what what the lessons might be from the past in terms of present day. So so yeah, so we're doing some, you know, more historical work and some more archival stuff. And then as well, we're trying to stay connected to the ongoing conversation in terms of economics and policy um, now.
1: So you've obviously been looking at so many different things throughout history, as you know, a part of your research and thorough examination of all of these these aspects of income inequality. So what have you found to be some of the most interesting parts
0: one thing that really stands out that I think we don't necessarily always appreciate is just how um I guess I would say like innovative and progressive the US economic tradition is. And so, you know, I think it comes through in reading, you know, even and it's not just like something that's stratified by class, right? Even people like uh, you know, Waddle Catchings, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, have this sort of egalitarianism within them that, especially in the past era, really comes out. And so, you know, this sort of is sort of one example, but um also another personality that we've, we spend some time with, and that we're hoping to republish some work from uh, in the future is Mariner Eccles, who was the uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve, so the nation's central banker, and from the 1930s, all the way until the late 1940s. And, you know, again, this is somebody he was a, he was from Utah, he was a Westerner. Um, and he was a, the president of a bank uh, in the 1920s. And he, uh, you know, when the Depression hit, his bank almost was was ruined by a bank friend, right? He basically through force of personality and almost like charisma, like getting on top of the tables and saying like, I, your money is safe. You can leave it in the bank. Like don't, uh, you know, don't close us down. Um, he was able to, to avert catastrophe for for his company. And then uh, in part prompted by that and also through, through work thoughts he was having, he sort of came to realize the importance of macroeconomic stability and the importance of the income distribution in um shaping that so he he then sort of internalized a lot of these ideas and went to washington and then you know, as as chair of the fed he's sometimes called like the the reinventor of the federal reserve or he he did a lot of work to make the Federal Reserve into the institution that it is today, um, he was able to, to then sort of implement these ideas. And again, I think it's really interesting that, you know, again, this is a person who is a, you know, he's definitely a business person, but he knows that uh, there's, there's this uh, need for a certain amount of, of equality or egalitarianism um, in order for the economy to function. And so I think that's one thing that I think really comes through again and again. If you look at the economic thought, sort of history of economic thought in the United States, especially until the through the, through the mid 20th century
1: certainly fascinating. (laughs) Definitely, definitely a very interesting um, piece to come out of that. So who all is involved in reviving growth Keynesianism? We've got a we've got a bit of a team.
0: So the people who are on the podcast are myself and these two PhD students in history from from the University of Chicago, which is where I was I was based um, before I came to Michigan. Uh, they're both uh, historians of capitalism, uh, Nick Johnson and Chris Hong. And then we've also got got help from some uh, some undergraduates. So we have two UROP students who are working with us this year, uh, Sophie Stukenborg and Jackson Overpack. So they they both uh, help us with uh, both the archival work as well as some of the dissemination aspects. And then in the past, we've we've worked with some undergraduates at the University of Chicago as well. So we've got a got a nice team going, and and we're starting to have an alumni network. So we're we're building that up little by little.
1: Very exciting indeed. So you shared a ton of information, mm-hmm. and. I want to ask you to help us boil it down. So if there's one thing that you want all listeners to take away with them from this conversation, what would it be?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. So I think if there's one thing i I would. I would say, and I guess I would also say, you know, I mean, maybe this is my professor hat, but people should do their own research and come to their own conclusions. But I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that economic inequality is not just sort of morally problematic in itself, but is also really harmful to the overall macroeconomy. So it's really harmful in terms of slower economic growth and more likelihood of recession. To me, there's this sort of, there's actually not a very strong trade-off between equality and efficiency, and we should, uh, you know, really think about the the economic case for reducing inequality as well as the the moral case or the social case. So that's, I think, if I were going to pick one thing, that would be the the key takeaway. I guess a sort of addendum to that would be I think that the United States and the sort of American tradition is a lot more egalitarian than people sometimes think, especially right now. And so I think there's oftentimes that people will say things like the United States is a center right country, or we're, you know, we're just more conservative, or we're, we're more comfortable with inequality than other parts of the world. And I think if you actually, you know, if you look at our history, that's really, uh, you can see why people say that, but I don't think it's actually super accurate. And there's a, there's a really strong tradition in the United States of, of egalitarianism in, in particular. And so, you know, things about, you know, when you come to the United States, your your parentage isn't supposed to matter as much. But also we've uh, you know, the U.S. invented the progressive income tax. Right. And we invented the antitrust movement. And so there's a lot there is a history of sort of using uh, using policy to create a more egalitarian and more equal economy. And that's that's something that's that's an American tradition as well as something that we can see in other parts of the world.
1: It's a really good takeaway when it's something that's so applicable to you know current moments and what everyone's talking about and examining right now and in everyday lives. Is there anything else that you want to share?
0: I think this is you know we've covered a lot of the a lot of the high points. You know, I just in general, I think there's a lot of interest now, I think it's really well placed in terms of understanding, you know, trying to understand what's going on with the economy and why, why is inequality so high? Why is economic growth not doing as well as it was in the past, even before the coronavirus, and then certainly, certainly now. Um, And so I think, you know, I think that's really welcome. And I think people should be, uh, you know, I would definitely say, like, you know, explore, you don't have to limit yourself to things that have been written in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, if you're trying to understand what's going on in, in the economy or the world. And there's a lot of there's a lot of insights out there to be discovered. Um, and I think in particular, if you look at sort of at, uh, at some of the historical writings about the economy, there's a lot to learn from those.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been immensely insightful, and I'm so glad that you were able to share all this information with us.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for having me. This has been great.
1: Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag U-Mish Impact.